It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The trial will be 8 to 5. Victor 8. Victor 8 ready. Emu 2. Emu 2 ready. Doppler. Doppler ready. 14.04 hours. The valiant aircraft takes off, carrying the weapon. Welcome to Atomic Dreamland podcast series. My name's Peter Butt. I'm a documentary filmmaker and podcaster. With the recent announcement of Australia's acquisition of a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines, I thought it worth reflecting on Australia's fraught nuclear history. Throughout the series, you'll hear from scientists, historians and ordinary citizens whom I've interviewed over the last two decades. Some were involved in Britain's atomic tests on Australian soil. The famous Atomic Weapons Test Safety Committee was advising the government that there had been no fallout, no radioactive contamination of the Australian mainland. My cynical view is that it must have been too dark for them to read their Geiger counters. On this particular day, I had one unit which would not respond to its normal calibration. Stuck it outside in the convent of its rocker. And obviously we're having radioactive rain. Others took part in top-secret animal and human experiments. As part of my duties, I was asked to attend a large public hospital and receive from the pathology department of that hospital a package which I was to on forward to the eastern states. On receiving this package, I identified bones as being those of young children. Thought to myself, bloody hell, what's going on here? This is the story of a vast country with a small population, fearful of its enemies, yet beholden to, and ultimately let down by its closest allies. A country that dreamed of an atomic future. A future in which in the minds of some, included a homegrown nuclear arsenal. The only way in which we can protect ourselves, I believe, is by having not machine guns and rifles, but the most sophisticated scientific weapons that we can devise. And I put nuclear weapons in that too. Since 
So put on your radiation suit and gas mask. You're about to enter Atomic Dreamland. Sweet dreams, fell sunbeams, find you. Sweet dreams, that they will walk you behind you. What in your dreams, whatever they be. Dream a little For many Australians, the Second World War left little doubt that their country had been virtually defenceless against invasion. And without America's assistance, Australia would have easily fallen to the Japanese. I remember the real dangers that were felt in Australia at the time. Sir Lennox Hewitt was the permanent head of the Prime Minister's Department in the Gorton government. Darwin had been bombed. Midget submarines in Sydney Harbour firing their shots out on what are the eastern suburbs. Had the Battle of the Coral Sea been lost, I don't believe we would have survived invasion. The annihilation of two Japanese cities in August 1945 brought an end to a global war and ushered in a new era of uncertainty, the Atomic Age. For the first time, a weapon had been created that could destroy an entire city and decimate its population. Well, it didn't come as a surprise because the Australians had been aware of the development of the atomic bomb for over two years. Wayne Reynolds is author of Australia's bid for the atomic bomb. But the impact of the explosion was as dramatic here as it was elsewhere. In 1946, Australian Labor Prime Minister Ben Chifley visited Japan. He went to see for himself the impact of the weapon that had forced Australia's wartime enemy to surrender. With every weapon in Australia's defence arsenal now obsolete, Chifley and his defence chiefs pondered how they could link the nation's future to the atom. You have to put yourself in the mindset of people then. Political scientist Jim Walsh. This terrible, terrible instrument seemingly won the war. And if it was true that the weapons were going to spread and that more and more countries were going to have them, which was the expectation at the time, uh, then it would be hard to resist the notion that Australia too should have some of these nuclear weapons. With tensions rapidly increasing between the Soviet Union and the West, Australia's Minister for External Affairs, Dr Herbert Evatt, sought out Australian expatriate physicist, Professor Mark Oliphant in London. They discussed the ramifications of atomic weapons for the British Empire. The technical implications of the bomb its colossal destructive power and its ease of delivery by the new methods of rocket warfare combined to convince me that if ever we are engaged again in a major war, it will mean the obliteration of our island home as an industrial centre. Oliphant was a member of the British team that had helped the Americans create the first atomic weapons. He told Everett of important political developments that could hinder Australia's entry into the atomic age. 
especially Britain's wartime agreement with the United States, not to share atomic technology with other countries, even close allies like Australia. After the war, the trust between Britain and America quickly evaporated. Washington was now refusing to share its atomic secrets, even with the United Kingdom. The Congress had a view that said, hey, we invented the bomb, of course, ignoring some of the British and Canadian contributions, but uh, the congressional view was, we invented the bomb, it's our technology, it's our advantage, and we're going to hold on to it. Why should we share this with anyone else? But Everett returned to Australia with some hope. With or without America's help, Britain was determined to develop atomic energy, and more importantly, its own atomic weapons. Australia, he believed, was well-placed to play a part in an empire atomic program. Cooperation began in 1946, when Australia joined with Britain to create a top-secret guided weapons program. Out of the desert grew the largest land-based testing range in the Western world, stretching from Woomera in Central Australia to the West Coast. The project's purpose to develop and test rockets and guided missiles. Weapons to attack both invading forces and enemy facilities thousands of kilometres away. When the range at Woomera was first set up, the idea was that it would be used to develop a, a kind of super V2 weapon, that's to say a flying bomb with a long range and one that could eventually be fitted with a nuclear warhead. Peter Morton is author of Fire Across the Desert. And these weapons were designed to be developed over an incredibly short time frame, a totally unrealistic time frame of just three or four years. It's very hard to convey the sense of urgency that the British felt at this time. They really thought that Armageddon, you know, the final showdown, was, was literally around the corner. Now, in the absence of some arrangement with the United States to have these weapons, they need the Australians in this period. The Joint Missile Project promised Australia the means to bolster her defences in the atomic age. But behind the scenes, an aggressive intelligence war between the Soviet Union and the United States was about to undermine the nation's nuclear future. The Americans had begun learning through the course of late 1946 and into 1947 that there were people in Australia working for uh, Soviet intelligence. Defence analyst, Des Ball. And who were quite clearly at different times passing information to the KGB. A top secret US intelligence operation, codenamed Venona, identified more than 20 Australians supplying classified information to the Soviet Embassy in Canberra. Most of the material was from the Department of Defence and External Affairs. It was encrypted by the embassy and dispatched to Moscow through normal post office channels. Unknown to the Soviets, British intelligence intercepted the cables and passed them on to the Americans. Some of the very highest classified documents in Australia, which by and large were coming from Washington and London, uh, were being given to the Russians. 
We had specific situations, for example, that when the Russians couldn't get material directly from their own people in London, that they would ask their people in Canberra to request those British cabinet documents be sent to Canberra and then they would pick them up here. So top secret British war cabinet documents, which they couldn't get from London, they were getting uh, from us. The Venona affair caused a crisis in British-US relations when Washington stopped passing classified information to Canberra. Indeed, the Americans gave Australia the same security grading as they gave the Soviet Union. Even Prime Minister Ben Chifley wasn't trusted with the details of the Venona operation. All the British told him was that his government was leaking like a sieve, and for Australia to have any hope of becoming a trusted partner in defence and atomic matters, he would have to tighten security. With the future of the Joint Missile Project at risk, Chifley set up the Australian security intelligence organisation, ASIO, under the guidance of Britain's MI5. But the damage was done. The missile technology that they are developing and testing in Wilmera, uh, there's a, a memo that goes out immediately, don't have any Australians on the high technology side of this. Historian Frank Kane. They can see the weapon when it arrives in Wilmera, they can fire it, they can measure it and that sort of thing and give us the information, but they're not allowed to see the works of it inside it and certainly they can't work in our laboratories. And I, I don't think the Australians are aware of this, uh, so they're just part of this apparatus, but they're never included on the inside of it. The atomic age had begun with excessive secrecy, but it was now festering with Cold War paranoia. Superpower rivalry and Soviet sympathisers within Australia had all but dashed the Labour government's atomic ambitions. Capitalising on Cold War fears and a determination to rid communism from Australia, Robert Menzies' Liberal Party swept Labour from power in late 1949. As Menzies came to office, two in every three Australians feared another global war was likely within the next decade. That same year, the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic bomb and Mao's communists had seized power in China. October 1st, 1949, Mao Zedong proclaims the birth of the People's Republic of China in the new communist capital of Peking. When war erupted in Korea in July 1950, Menzies put the defence forces on a pre-mobilisation footing for World War III. With all the goodwill in the world and with the most heartfelt desire to make an end of war, we must be ready to meet it if it comes. With the added fear of Japan rebuilding its military, Menzies set out to resuscitate Australia's faltering relationship with the United States. The result was the ANZUS Treaty. For the first time, Australia had signed a defence agreement in which the British had no role. But access to atomic technology, which Menzies also wanted to secure, was not part of the budding new relationship. I don't think Menzies' broad objectives, strategic objectives, were that different to his predecessors, despite the Cold War rhetoric. Wayne Reynolds is author of Australia's bid for the atomic bomb. The problem was, like Chifley, he found himself frozen out of this atomic club. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A major uranium find at Rum Jungle in the Northern Territory was the bargaining chip Menzies believed would grant Australia entry into the select nuclear club. In return for uranium, Menzies pressured the United States to provide the technology that would allow Australia to research atomic energy. Up until that point, he, like Chifley, had been quite enthusiastic about atomic energy. Alice Court, author of Atomic Australia. But the Americans gave him a dose of atomic realism and said, look, industrial atomic energy is way down the track whereas the weapons option is now, and so we need your uranium now. The American rebuff disappointed Menzies. His only comfort, Australia's uranium, would soon be aimed at Soviet Russia in America's nuclear warheads. But in 1951, a new opportunity arose for Australia. Britain had built the bomb and was looking for somewhere to test it. After the war, Britain decided that it had to have its own nuclear weapons, independent of the USA. British-born physicist Sir Ernest Titterton. Now, the appropriate test site is on a continent where there are no people and no complications. Australia fulfilled that view. With the defence of not only Britain in mind, but also Australia, Prime Minister Menzies agreed to host the tests. But in return for a test site, he wanted Britain to supply Australia with an industrial atomic reactor. When Menzies asks Attlee, the Prime Minister of Britain, whether they will assist in the production of a reactor, Attlee says, well, we'd like to, but the defence implications of such a step at this stage uh, do not allow us to take that step. The British told Menzies bluntly that atomic power and atomic weapons were part of the same equation and they were not prepared to upset America by transferring nuclear technology to even a close ally like Australia. So without conditions or a guarantee of a transfer of technology, Menzies gave Britain access to the Montebello Islands off northern Western Australia for her first atomic test, codenamed Operation Hurricane. They chose Montebello quite specifically because it resembled an estuary. Rob Robotham was a health physicist with the UK Atomic Energy Research Establishment. And the British were concerned about the potential effects of nuclear weapons dropped on London, so they wanted a, an estuary like that. Menzies needed someone to oversee Australia's interest at the test. British physicist Sir Ernest Titterton, who referred to Australia as a continent without people, fitted the bill. 
By this time, I had come to the Australian National University as its first professor of nuclear physics. I had experience in the USA with weapon testing, and I went to the USA to a laboratory in New Mexico called Los Alamos Laboratory, which was the laboratory that developed the first nuclear bombs. The first one was tested at Alamogordo, and I was the person who produced the equipment that actually fired that bomb. And as you know, subsequent to that, two weapons were used against Japan, one at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and those weapons finished the war. So the Australian government immediately asked me if I would act for Australia in controlling British weapon tests which would be set up in Australia. And I joined forces with Sir Leslie Martin, who was in charge of the Defence Research Development Policy Committee of the government, and a small group of four people were assigned the task of going to the Montebello Islands, where the first British bomb was tested, and controlling that operation. Sir Ernest was very much a nuclear bombardier. He really did believe that nuclear weapons had a role to play in preventing a, another catastrophe like the Second World War. From the broad and busy Thames estuary, HMS Tracker sets out alone for the remote and barren Montebello Islands, lying some 60 miles off the northwest coast of Australia. At Montebello, the advance party is already at work. 200 Royal Engineers had arrived in April to find an empty wilderness of saltbush and spinnerbacks. Parched and stunted, it readily burned to make way for installations and equipment. And every installation, every instrument, has to be placed by survey in relation to ground zero, the planned point of the explosion. This was not a bomb like those dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, in the sense that it was dropped from a height with maximum spread of fallout and so on. It was actually on a ship. HMS Plym brought it out and uh, uh, acted as, um, as the carrier of the bomb and the bomb was left on the ship and it was just um, exploded there. The weapon is ready to explode at the touch of control headquarters on an island some miles away. In the half-light of the control room, the safety link is delivered to the controller. The final process of firing can now be set in track. Time bracket open. Fox George, this is Hal One. Pass your message, over. Hello, Hal One, this is Fox George. Phase pattern completed, over. Understand, phase Saturn completed, out. Right. You can put the safety key in now. Safety link in. Circuit complete. of Montebello marks the achievement of British science and industry in the development of atomic power. For good or evil, for peace or war, for progress or destruction. The answer doesn't lie with Britain alone, but we may have a greater voice in this great decision 
if we have the strength to defend ourselves and to deter aggression. That was the meaning of Montebello. Following the success at Montebello, Britain asked Australia to provide sites on the mainland for more atomic tests. Unknown to the Australian populace, some of the tests would involve top-secret biological experiments to study the impact of radioactive fallout on animals. The findings would lead to one of the most bitter disputes in the history of Australian science. Coming up in episode two of Atomic Dreamland. Instead of sending the radioactive fallout out to sea, it went right across the whole of the northern half of Australia. For the government, it was an absolute disaster because we have this prospector near Cloncurry bawling his billy as the story goes and his Geiger counter goes berserk. It's not subject to the Official Secrets Act and it hits the national press. Atomic Dreamland is produced by Black Bottle Films with the kind assistance of the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia. Many thanks to my colleague Harry Bardwell for his interview with Sir Ernest Titterton. To explore our other investigative podcast series, visit blackbottlefilms.com.au.